Welcome to another edition of From the Resort Podcast. I am your host, Tim Wilshire. This is episode number 51, and this is the Leader of the Opposition, Christopher Lux on. Christopher uh, speaks very, very well. He is a long-time, nine or ten-year run as the CEO of um, Air New Zealand, where Air New Zealand were very, very successful. He has only been uh, in politics um, since he was elected at the last election in 2020. There weren't a lot of uh, nationals actually elected. I think they said about six or seven. Um, but here he is, the leader of the National Party, and he's speaking to us for about 40, uh, 48 minutes, including question time. Uh, see what he has to say, see what, what his um, uh, narratives are, and uh, make your own mind up if he, because he is currently the favourite to be the next Prime Minister of this great country of New Zealand. So without any further ado, I'll get uh, Sharon for Fifield to introduce um, Joseph Mooney and uh, Christopher Luxnong. This morning, uh, I'm Sharon Fifield, Chief Executive of Queenstown Business Chamber of Commerce, for those that don't know me. And if I haven't met you yet, I really want to meet you, so let's catch up. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome the Leader of the Opposition, Christopher Luxon, uh, here today. Nicola Willis, his deputy, and also always good to see Joseph Mooney. Um, we're really looking forward to hearing your dissection of the budget. I think you referred to it as a budget blowout. Um, over a cup of coffee and some breakfast this morning. So, Joseph, I'll welcome you up to introduce. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sharon, and uh, uh, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be here with you nice and bright and early. And uh, um, Angela, uh, thank you for all you do, and the rest of uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, great to see you all here, and uh, great to see you all the members here. Um, look, it's, it's a real pleasure to have uh, both Chris Luxon and Nicola Willis together. It's, it's very rare, I think, to be able to get both of them together to an event like this. So it's, it's a, a real privilege to have them both here this morning to uh, share with you um, their thoughts on uh, New Zealand economy and how things are going. I'm just going to say very briefly, it's fantastic to represent this amazing area. It does have a lot of challenges though, and we're certainly trying to raise those. And our team is uh, very aware of the challenges that we have around immigration, around housing and accommodation, um, etc. And I'll say um, we are in an era where it is quite challenging. Um, we've got the biggest balance of payment deficit in the developed world. And I got into this job because I was a kid in the 80s, and you know, I know how, they, how tough things can get. Um, you know, no food on the table is my reality as a kid, and I was concerned back in 2020 that we could head into a similar environment. And the basic synopsis is, if you don't take care of the economy, if you don't take care of businesses, um, then they can't take care of their employees, and <clears throat> employees can't put food on the table for their kids. And that's something I experienced as a kid, and that's the reality right now. So it's really important uh, that we do this, take care of business, so they can take care of their people, so they can take care of their families. But, like with that, I'm going to um, introduce, uh, well, you don't think need any introduction, but um, Nicola Willis and Crystal Axon, uh, it's brilliant to have you here this morning. And uh, well, please uh, welcome. Hey, well, kia ora, good morning, everybody. Can I say, firstly, thank you for getting up so early to come and spend some time with us this morning. Um, I wake up at 4.30 most mornings, so I'm ready for a second breakfast, really. But, um, <laughs> This is a real Chris Luxon that you have before you, not an AI-generated one. Um, I am here in the flesh. If I could do anything, I'd be taller, I'd be slightly hairier, maybe. Uh, but this is, this is for real. 
Uh, can I just say to uh, you guys, thank you so much for hosting us here, and thank you for your leadership. Um, Angela and Sharon do an amazing job here, and you can already sense this is the best food and the best breakfast I've ever experienced at any chamber across the country, and I've spoken to quite a few. But it's just interesting, even just moving around the table, you've got really diverse uh, people and interests and uh, people doing interesting and amazing things. And to all of you in the room, I just say, as business people, uh, sometimes it feels under this government that's a terrible thing to be doing. It's not. Um, I have been come from that world. I know your world. And uh, you should be incredibly proud about what you do as business people because you are the lifeblood of New Zealand. I just do want to acknowledge my very good friend, our amazing deputy, our excellent finance spokesperson, Nicola Willis. Um, it is awesome to be on this journey with you. We are a great team, a great partnership. And um, it's just fantastic that you're here today with us today. We really appreciate it. And to Joseph, can I say thank you, mate, for all the way that you champion for this region so well. You do an amazing job. He stands up and gets to Parliament in Wellington. He's got one of the biggest electorates in the country. He'll go through the most amount of cars, running out the most amount of miles, I suspect, travelling it. Uh, but he actually stands up and he, and he often just quotes exactly what people are saying here into our team. And it's really helpful and it's really good that he represents uh, this region so strongly. Hey, well, listen, um, as you know, I've been in politics now for two years. And I guess the one overriding impression that I have, well, I have two impressions. One is that this is a country filled with endless potential. I honestly think there is no reason why New Zealand cannot do extremely, extremely well in the world in the next 50 years. Well, I get to see and go up and down the country each and every week, and I get to see, first and foremost, the fundamentals that we have in place that I think can serve us incredibly well. And it starts with people. We have talented, entrepreneurial, creative, highly innovative people. Many of you in this room represent exactly what I'm talking about. And there's no doubt about it, we are the best in the world, we can be the best in the world, we shouldn't ever apologise for being Kiwis, but we need some ambition and some aspiration and some positivity and some optimism, and that comes from a lot of our entrepreneurs and our business people uh, here, which is fantastic. The second thing is that if you were going to put a country and build, design a brand new country from scratch, I reckon you'd put a bang smack in the middle of where New Zealand is. Because we are smack in the middle of the Asia-Pacific region, the fastest growing region in the world, with massive amounts of middle classes sitting in Asia, Americas and Australia. So huge opportunities for us. And obviously coming from a country that is you know, um, founded on the Westminster system, is a liberal democracy that respects the rule of law, we have all the fundamentals, I would say to you, that we can do incredibly well out there in a world of 8 billion people in 195 countries. I guess the other piece I'd say, though, is that the way that Nicola and I and, and Joseph feel is that the country is totally, utterly, completely going in the wrong direction. That we are actually not realising all that potential that we have. We are not solving the problems that we have. And we are not getting things done for the New Zealand people that ends up making their daily lives better. And that's part of our role in government, alongside you in business, and alongside our community organisations to actually be able to do, to do our job, which is to make sure we're getting outcomes uh, for the New Zealand people. Uh, why have I come to politics? I've come because I actually like to get in and actually solve problems. And I've watched New Zealand from the sidelines, and I've actually decided, no, no, I've got to get off out of the sidelines and get into that arena and actually solve the problems, realise the potential, start getting things done. And a lot of my life has been in a corporate world, you know, doing a lot of turnaround jobs. And I think that's what New Zealand desperately needs right now, is a big turnaround and to get ourselves back on track and looking out the front windscreen and saying, right, how do we happen to our future? How do we make things happen for ourselves? So that's really my motivation. But say we are off track, 
but we can fix it. We have all the people and all the smarts that we need to get it back on track. And I think a government that takes over on October the 14th, our government, needs to do three things. We need to fix the economy so that we can actually reduce the cost of living and lift incomes for people. And by fixing the economy, we then have the money that we need to invest and to afford the public services, in particular better health and education, and also restore law and order and personal responsibility. And I think if we could start the track on those three things, we'd be on the right pathway, I believe, to taking the country forward and getting it turned around. So I just take each of those, firstly fixing the economy, what do we mean by that and what Nicola and I plan to do around that. I've been really struck that I get to meet Kiwis that are doing it incredibly tough each and every day in this country. And some of you in this room, I know you're pretty well sorted and you've been successful and uh, maybe you don't feel it as much. But I was very struck at, struck at the end of last year, I had a huge opportunity to sit with a family in budgeting services as they were wrestling with how to make their household budget work and most importantly, to be able to pay their mortgage on their interest uh, that had just gone from 2% to 6%. And they, could, they got behind on their mortgage repayments and the bank was threatening a mortgage sale. And as you sit in a room with a family of four, um, the mum and a dad in a house of $1.1 million, and the change in the mortgage rate, meaning they had to find $700 a fortnight, and you observe the tension between the mum and the dad as they fight with each other about who's spending money irresponsibly and causing the problem. And then you saw the kids having, you know, parents saying, we're going to have to stop the sporting activity, these swimming lessons in order to afford the mortgages. It's a huge privilege to sit in that room, but it's a, a hugely vulnerable place for that family uh, to actually open up their whole finances and have those discussions. Now that discussion is happening in 20,000 homes across New Zealand today. There are 20,000 Kiwis and families that are well behind on their mortgage payments. There are 430,000 Kiwis that are actually behind on all their other debts. And half of us are actually worried about money issues on a daily basis. So that is the reality of what's happening. And that's why Nicola and I talk a lot about the economy. It's not because it's about the money, it's not about the dollars and the cents, and it's not about the economics, although it is. Trust us, we manage all the technical stuff. But we talk about the economy because a well-managed economy is actually how you show that you care about people, because that's how you avoid all of that pain and suffering that we're seeing. But you have to be really clear about why are we in that situation today. And why we are, and it links back to the budget that we saw last week, is that we have a government that is spending a lot more. They are spending a billion dollars more each and every week than when they first came to power. A billion dollars, just think about that. We used to use the word millions or hundreds of millions. We're talking about a billion dollars each and every week, higher level of spending than what they had. Spending's up 80% to $137 billion. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we had an 80% improvement in health? Have we had an 80% improvement in education? Have we had an 80% improvement in law and order? And the answer is no. So a huge amount of government spending. And because they are addicted to spending, and much of it is wasteful, think about consultants, think about TV, $100 million on advertising, uh, think about all those comms consultants, management consultants that are sitting there, the extra 14,000 bureaucrats that have been added to Wellington under this government, it's made us a country of bureaucrats rather than can do. Because they're addicted to spending, they have to tax more. And so now they collect $48 billion more in tax a year, $100 million more tax each and every day uh, than what they had when they came to power. So we don't have a tax problem, we have a spending problem.
but they need to raise taxes in order to fund the spending addiction, just like addicts do. You know, basically that's what's going on. Um, sorry, I'm getting a bit too political for you, but um, <laughs> and a bit, bit too imagery, uh, too much metaphor. But uh, I just say to you, yeah, that's important, and I want to be under you under no illusions. You know, if they win the next election, there is a capital gains tax or a wealth tax or inheritance tax coming. And if you do have a KiwiSaver account or you have a small business or a farm or a Nestle that you've been saving up, they're coming after that money too. Um, that's where it's going to. And then after more spending, more taxing, you get more borrowing. And so our, our borrowing, well, this country's borrowing has gone from roughly $10 billion up to about $95 billion. And the interest alone on that will be our fourth biggest expense, and it's running at $22 million a day. So you can see the pattern of more spending, more taxing, more borrowing. And the consequence of all of that is that it's led to domestic inflation. And when you get high inflation, then the counter is actually high interest rates. When you get high interest rates, it slows businesses down and shrinks the economy. And when the economy starts shrinking, then businesses start laying off workers and you get the risk of high unemployment. And that is the history of economics, and we, we forget that, and we need to learn the lessons from history incredibly well and understand the pattern. And that's why Nicola and I, since we've become the leaders, have been saying, hey, listen, this government needs to start making adjustments now, because the longer it goes on, the worse the medicine, the recipe has to be, as we know from history. Some of you in the room, many of you look too young for it, but my parents would say in the early 80s they had a 19% mortgage rate. And it was because we had high levels of inflation, where every year your money didn't buy what you used to buy. Uh, everyone was going backwards. You end up with high interest rates, because that's what you've got to do to counter that inflation. And then you had the economy shrinking and you had high unemployment. And that's a nightmare scenario. People losing their jobs, having to pay 28% increase in food prices, and deal with mortgages and rents going through the roof with no working, no working income. So that's the challenge of why we need to fix the economy. What are we going to do? Nicola and I have got a five-point plan for getting to the underlying causes of inflation. We can keep band-aiding the solutions. You saw it in the 70s and 80s, carless days, and a whole bunch of tactical solutions, but you've got to get underneath and actually get to the underlying causes. So don't pass costs on to businesses that they can't afford that lead to higher prices. Think what's called so-called fair pay awards, national insurance schemes, all those things that you're going to get loaded up with. Make sure that we actually unblock the blockages in the economy, which is immigration settings and red tape that's stopping you from growing your businesses as fast as we want you to do that. Um, we've got to go through that spending line item by line item. We have to give you back tax relief because with inflation adjusted everything else, but we should take the thresholds and lift them up by inflation and get to get people to keep their money in their own pocket. And we need the Reserve Bank to be focused on getting inflation under 3%. So, and then we've got to grow the economy, and that means a world-class education system, good investment in infrastructure, you know, making sure we've got good investments in innovation, research, development, science, technology, make it easy to set up a business here and have strong international connections. Those are the five things that will drive our prosperity and lift our wages and our incomes for all. So that's the plan, you know, we've got to fix the economy, so reduce the cost of living, so we can lift incomes and ultimately afford the public services that we want to see. The second thing we're going to do is restore law and order because, and restore law and order and personal responsibility. I try, and I'll probably have averaged, I think, over recent times, almost a, a visit each week to someone who's been a victim of crime. And the one that stood out with me earlier in the year was I went with Mark Mitchell to a dairy. It was no bigger than the distance between these two green columns in the centre here. And it was a two-storey building. Mum and Dad, 32 years old, lived upstairs and slept upstairs and their five-year-old slept on the mattress behind the counter uh, and, um, you know, and that's where, where he slept overnight. 
And at 2 a.m. in the morning, a car comes right through the center of that dairy, almost hitting the five-year-old. Uh, that has caused huge anxiety and stress in that family. Gone on to see you have two more ram raids subsequent to that first event. And you sit there and go, that, and those, that family, that couple, took two or three jobs to get the deposit to get that business and to do that business. They wake up each morning, they feed their kids, they get them, they're the five-year-old, they get them to school, uh, they do the right thing, they pay their taxes. And they said to me famously, he said to me, Chris, I thought this was a place where I could come and I could make something of myself. If I worked hard, I could get the rewards of that success and I could do well. And it didn't matter where I'd come from in India and where I, it matter where I was going. And actually, if I did work hard in this country, I could actually get ahead. And actually, that's the problem, is that, and that's happened because we've got a government that's incredibly soft on crime. And it's not respecting the victims, it's respecting the offenders more than the victims. And so we need to get really serious about that. And that means we need to give our police the tools so they can tackle and do the jobs that they need to do. They want to do the jobs. They want to protect and serve. Our frontline officers are fantastic, but we make their life a bit difficult with time. We need to crack down on gangs. We're going to ban gang patches. We're going to make sure we have police powers to break up assorting, associating and, and consorting uh, powers of, of when gang members come together. And we're going to make sure they have warrantless search powers to actually get on top of the scourge of illegal guns. Because here's the reality of it. At the moment in New Zealand, this government has one target, and it's a 30% reduction in prisoners. And yet we know that there is a 30% growth in violent crime. There's been over a 40% growth in retail crime. Gang membership's up over 60%, and a ram rate happens every 15 hours. And we can either choose to just accept that and just let it slide and slide and slide, and that just becomes the new normal and just how things are here in New Zealand. Or we actually get to choose to say, no, 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 that's not the deal here, that's not how it works. There are rights and responsibilities and we need to be tough on crime. And yes, we need to get to the causes of poverty and the things that are driving it. That's through something called social investment, which Nicola is also leading for us. But it's really important that we see the message really clearly. We don't mind a 30% reduction in prisoners, but we need a 30% reduction in crime. But that's not the case here. So we have to really get restore law and orders and restore personal responsibility. And I guess the final thing is really about making sure we deliver and improve health and education. And if I take education, that is the thing that has alarmed me the most since coming to politics in the last two years. Uh, because I'm a kid that had young parents, they left school at 15, 16. I'm a product of having had a good state education and being the first in my family to go to university. That enabled me to go out in the world and be successful. Uh, and actually that enabled me to get from a set of circumstances to a better set of circumstances. And that's a story for many of you in this room as well. But the sad thing today is that our education system is letting down our kids and it's limiting our ability to have a better educated workforce that enables higher paying jobs or accesses uh, value-added services and products that actually can lead to higher wages and incomes. So today, here are some facts because I want you to sort of understand this. The problem, and I think this is what we do badly in government or is done badly in government, is often there's a lot of solutions that go floating around in search of a problem. You know? But in business, we actually define a problem incredibly well, and then we put pragmatic, practical solutions in place to deliver against that problem. But the problem is pretty simple. Over half our kids show up at high school now below curriculum. Uh, we had a situation this year where over half our kids failed the most basic maths, reading, and writing tests. Uh, the, thing, the test that the OECD says is so critical for them to do well in the world. A kid today knows a year and a half less maths than their parents did 20 years ago as 15-year-olds. 
and we used to be in the top 10 countries, the developed countries of the world, now we're out of the top 10. In fact, a massive gone from 4th to 27th. So that's the reality of it. And that's the worry for Nicola and I is that that's a, not just an, that's an economic crisis in the future, but it's also a big social and moral failure if we don't do something right there. And you then wonder why our kids don't go to school. We have over 53%, over half our kids, not at school regularly. We have 100,000 chronically absent from school. But you disengage from school if you don't feel confident, you don't know the basics well. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to go teach the basics brilliantly. That's the first logical step that we need to do and the many things we need to do in education. Now there's an hour of maths, an hour of reading, an hour of writing, compulsory in primary and in intermediate school. Now for some of you in the room, you're going, gee, that sounds terrible because I remember my schooling and it wasn't fun when they did an hour of maths, reading and writing. Uh, our rest assured, our teachers are amazing. They bring it to life in a pretty cool and engaging way. Uh, but that's what, that's what we need to do. We need to have a really defined curriculum year by year as to what our kids are taught and learnt. We need to assess them every six months, not in a pass-fail, not in a how you're doing versus other, other, other kids, but in a sense of are you actually learning and transmitting and, and receiving the knowledge that we're imparting to you this year. I had a mum come up to me, she said, I've got my son, I've watched him over COVID, he's nine years old, I think he's off the pace, I don't think he knows his basics really well. I was really shocked at his spelling, really shocked at his, lit, his maths literacy. She said, I went to the teacher and the teacher said, look, don't worry, he's a boy, he'll come right in the next two or three years. Long story short, mum persisted and it turned out the kid had dyslexia. Now we can, we can, we've got tactics and strategies to deal with teachers, you know, to overcome dyslexia with our kids. But isn't it a shame because he wasn't picked up through some assessment of just what, what, what's he learning, we couldn't actually get the help to him that he was desperately needed. So that's what we've got to do on education on healthcare. It's really a big challenge around getting the workforce in place, get the targets back in place, because all our healthcare targets have gone backwards, and make sure we get the funding from the central bureaucracy out to the regions. Uh, that's really very important to us. Um, and the start for that is, again, in terms of problem definition, is really around making sure that we, um, uh, that we, that we actually can actually get a workforce in place. And that's why we said if you're a nurse in New Zealand and a midwife, Every nurse we bring in the system, we lose one out of the system. So it's one in and one or two out. They can end up going off overseas. And as a consequence, if you're going to prepare to stay in New Zealand for five years, we'll bond you into New Zealand. We'll pay $22,500 off your student loan. And it's those kind of ideas that are practical that we really need to be able to work through in order to deal with the shortages that we've got. So long story short, I'll just say to you, we have a fantastic country. We have endless potential. We now have to go to work and get it done. It means that we do have to fix the economy so we can you know, reduce the cost of living and that we can afford the public services and health and education and law and order that we desperately want to have. And if we can do those three things, we get ourselves on the right pathway, we get the show on the road, the car out of the ditch, into first and second gear, and then we're moving forward. Uh, and that's really what we've got to do uh, right now to get the country back on track. And with that, Nicola and I have to take any questions that you may have. <laughs> Not sure that's what you wanted or needed, yeah, yeah. Or that, um, no, no, right. no. and it's probably, probably given you a lot of um, information and very early in the morning. I've always got questions. Yeah. Um, Great. So in the budget there was basically nothing that we could see for regional development. Yeah. Um, and I know the, the current government seems to be centralising everything. How do you feel? We feel as a region, we know our issues and we, we yeah. have great solutions, but we need support. Yeah. So how, where do you stand on that? Big difference between the National Party and the Labour Party. Labour Party believe in centralisation and control. We know best, we're vulnerable from Wellington, government can do it all. 
And as a result, that's why you've seen the amalgamation of polytechnics, for example, 16 into one. You've seen the 20 DHBs into one, and you've seen three waters go that way as well. It's just a philosophical difference between our parties. We, on the other hand, believe in localism and devolution. Um, I personally am very, very strong about that because um, when I was younger, I read a great book, Man's Search for Meaning, by, um, you know, it's a great book on, on just the, a commentary on the West, and that there are three actors in our society. There is government that sets the rules and the frameworks up. There are businesses like you that act with great speed and scale and can execute so, so well. And there are community organisations that see the pain, the hurt, the need, the frustration. There are three equal but different set, you know, different actors in our society. And I think we've turned the country into parent child, where actually the government does everything centrally, and the business sector and the community sector sort of, you know, sort of dance around all of that. Uh, but they're actually complementary but different, but working together on the same problems. So we do want to get money from the centre out to community organisations, whether they be business or, or community oriented. I think there's a whole new way of working that's desperately needed. That we've got locked in a central government, local government kind of dynamic. It's a real punch and duty show. It's really counterproductive. There's a lot of conversation, but not a lot of action that happens. So you start a conversation on infrastructure for a bridge or a road. You know, Jim Bolt can do that with the national government. And the national government changes. The Jim changes, and so you know the whole thing gets bounced around. We still have the same conversation five years down the road. And so when you think about, you know, Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, and people landed there nine and a half years later. I always had a test in my head was why does it take more than nine years to build a road or to, to get a busway in place or to fix up a sewerage system or whatever it is. So I think there's a different way to work with it, like the Australians do, with what we call city or regional deals, where you come together with regions and, and um, central government as equal partners playing different roles. But you agree the most important infrastructure needs for the region they are then locked up to the things that make the biggest difference, the most amount of people in the fastest amount of time. But then you lock them up for 10 years and say, this is what we're doing, and then governments can come or go, but at least you've got a 10-year plan of what the projects are that we're investing in. And I appreciate there will be lots of different needs, and there will be things that, you know, uh, we can agree on 70 or 80% of the big stuff, and the most important thing in a turnaround job is to get going and actually start getting that done. And we have to get quite creative on funding and financing mechanisms, but we're very much up for that, and Chris Bishop's been leading our thinking in that regard around that. So I agree with you. I think it is about localism and devolution, and those closest to the problems are best to solve the problems, you know, rather than going to the bureaucracy sitting there. Yes, mm -hmm. ma'am. Can you say your name and what you do? Just so everybody can hear you. Everyone knows Matt, I've been told, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Matt Wong, um, owner of Life Global Skydiving and a few other things. Yeah, yeah. Um, question I have, and that was a great segue to my question of bringing it local because we know best. Uh, are the um, bed tax. Yeah. So we have a problem here, we've got a low rate payer base. Yes, mixed use infrastructure, low we rates, got, high tourists. We've got a yeah. high um, output of, of, of economic growth here. Mm -hmm. We can solve the problem potentially, but it's going to put a burden with a bed tax on our accommodation sector. On the other hand, it gives us the ability to solve a lot of infrastructure ways and problems that we've got now. I want to know under a national government, what is your opinion on that and would you support it or not? Nicola, do you want to answer this one? <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I historically um, in government, national was pretty uh, nervous about a bed tax because we worried that actually they would price up. Uh, 
accommodation and tourism centres and potentially push tourists away. So I think the case for a big tax needs to be established really carefully, that you're not going to um, kill the golden goose when you do it. And that's always been our concern. At the heart of your question is what are the additional funding and financing tools a fast-growing area like Queenstown can use because you're not going to get enough revenue from rates to build the infrastructure you need to support the growth you need. We agree that's a problem. So what we uh, have been working very hard on uh, is changes to the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act, which is an act that exists at the moment. It was designed to give local government a few more tools for creating revenue. It's clunky, very hard to use, very few councils have used it at all. So we want to tidy it up and make it easy to use so that councils can, for example, say yes to that development, but that developer, by the way, is going to put a special rate on all of the people who buy homes in that development that will then pay for the pipes and the roads that need to go there. At the moment, as you know, those mechanisms are very difficult to use. Uh, but around the world, funding and financing schemes that allow those who are benefiting from growth to contribute more to the growth work. And that's what we want to see. Because we want to say to Queenstown, grow, 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 but actually, here's how you can have some options for how you're going to pay for it. So uh, we'll be making our infrastructure and housing uh, full <coughs> policy announcement in the next few weeks. Uh, and one of the test cases we've had in our minds, we've put it together, is what would this mean for a rapidly growing area that would make it easier for the council to say yes to more development? Because we've heard you. We see it, but the reason we don't open up all the land for housing is we can't afford to borrow against our rating base to build all of the infrastructure. So we're going to give you some new tools. Well said. Yep. <laughs> so Next question, yes, ma'am. Um, hi, I'm Melissa Jenner, local business owner. Um, my question is about housing. Yes. Um, I think despite interest rates rising and inflation pressures, we haven't really seen housing prices shift dramatically. And you're right that we need to bring in more immigration, we need mass immigration to fund growth, but where is the housing going to come from? We're the poster child for the problem. You are a bit, yeah. there's, there's a lot of people without housing, and where, where do you stand on social housing or incentives for people to build more social housing? Because I think, to your point, lay, laying that cost on business owners, developers and housing companies may not be the answer, so I'm just interested in where you stand on that. Yeah, it's a little bit touching and building on what I was just saying is that if you reimagine actually the, the challenge we've got in housing is, let's be clear, back up a bit. We've got a country the size of Great Britain and Japan, and yet we've, we can't build, a, you know, and our houses are more expensive. And that's just insane. We're in a country of 5 million people in the land space. We have not done a good job of consenting and opening up green fields uh, so that we can actually get land built. And that gets you back to, yes, you can talk about the tactical stuff, but actually at, this, at the fundamental level, if you're a council, You've got to go put roads and pipes and, and stuff in before you actually get the rates back. And if your government centrally go, yeah, I'm pro-development because you actually get GST and you get tax receipts and you get revenue straight away. So there's some perverse incentives that makes that conversation always torturous and long. And that's what Nicola and I have been talking about with Chris Bishop, is actually how do we actually reimagine that whole consenting process, uh, incenting local councils, uh, rewarding them for, for, for delivering on growth, how do we actually get those incentives right in the system. So that's really a big part of it. Your point's a good one, which is you end up in social housing pretty quickly, because if you can't buy a house, you end up wanting to rent one. Well, actually, the rental market's got quite tough because of interest deductibility in the Brightline test, which we'll restore. 
Um, you know, you end up in a place where you've had a lot of costs and rents keep going up and up and up. Um, and then you end up in a social housing scenario and there's now gone to 28, 26,000 people on the state house waiting list up from 6,000. And then if you can't get a state house waiting list, you actually end up in emergency accommodation. And I've spoken to people in, in motels that, that their rent went up $50 with their private landlord, which they had to because of interest deductibility in Brightline, and that kicked them out of the market and they ended up finding themselves in emergency accommodation. So they're all linked, those four parts, ownership, rental, social housing, emergency housing. On the social housing side, what we need to do is be able to get capital to the community housing providers. So in somewhere like Australia, yes, you have a state house authority building state houses, but you also have 30, up to 30% of the properties being built by community housing providers. Think Salvation Army, think Maori Property Trust, uh, a whole bunch of Queenstown Lakes Housing <laughs> Trust, all that good stuff. Yep. Nicola knows as well as a housing spokesperson, uh, former housing spokesperson. So you know, that's a big, big opportunity for us to do that. But we were talking a bit earlier is I also think there's a lot of um, opportunity to bring different and new products into the market. And I think what's happening is that we are so rooted in the paradigm of how we've always done things around housing, around financing, that we actually haven't thought or imagined how other places do it. So other countries have these problems, Ireland, Israel, Denmark, Switzerland, um, they're all five million people countries, but they do it differently. And so that's what we've got to try and imagine. So there are products like Build to Rent, for example, where you come in and actually you build a, a building that will last 100 years, you look for a 6% return, and the super funds might partner with an overseas investor to do that or a local investor to do that. But those kinds of products we don't make easy to happen here in New Zealand uh, from an overseas investment point of view as well as some other stuff. So those are the kinds of things that you, it's, it's a complex issue but it's all actually linked. But a lot of it does start with actually getting this consenting and this infrastructure financing and funding stuff sorted and then freeing up your, your rental market and then opening up to new products I think that exists that we, we see in other parts of the world that just aren't here in New Zealand. Because we've thought about things like we've always thought about it since the 70s about, about property. Right, any other? Yeah. Oh, yes, mate. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, uh, Tim Wilshire um, from Brisbane, accountant I mentioned yesterday. That's okay, mate. That's right. um, <laughs> podcaster. So, my wife's got a question actually. Yeah, nice white jacket on yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> um, this might be something Joseph may be able to help answer as well. Uh, what are the plans as far as expanding the hospital here in Queenstown or build a new one? Uh, we have a growing population, lots of uh, tourists coming in, visitors. Uh, we you know, have to go to Invercargill or Dunedin for any sort of uh, health care and there's no real health specialist either in the area. Is there any sort of uh, national plan to address uh, that? Yep, so good question. Um, I can tell you that Joseph has been in both Nicola and my office talking about the hospital uh, and advocating very strongly for why it needs to be on there. At the one point I had Penny Simmons, Joseph Mooney and um, Michael Woodhouse talking about Dunedin, Invercargill and Queenstown fighting with each other and me and Nicola about why we need to fund it and what was going to happen. So, Joseph, I'll let you talk to it. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, look, I've, I've been advocating for some time that we take a sort of triangular vision of our region's needs. We've got Dunedin, we've got Invercargill, and they both have their needs. And we've got Queensland Lake Central Otago, which have a population base that's actually bigger than other places that have base hospitals like Greymouth, like Blenheim, like Gismantide Arthur. Um, and like, I'm advocating we need to start this thinking now. This is going to take a bit of work, it's going to cost a bit, um, but you know, maybe a public private partnership might be the answer. Um, but it's something that we need 
and our population is growing rapidly um, in, in this hot region. So um, we send a lot of people down to Invercargill and to Dunedin, put a lot of pressure on, on their services. And um, so look, it's, it's a conversation we're having. Um, the, the, the challenge we have, if you're a Nicola in my shoes, and we've just watched a budget blow out big time, yeah. and we have huge sympathy for needing to invest in frontline services, and we understand the needs, particularly in capital, uh, with respect to the hospitals. But we've just watched Grant Robertson literally blow his capital budget apart. So we have the sympathy, but in fairness to Nicola, who's actually got it now, she's the person under immense pressure because everyone's got lots of asks. But meanwhile, our financial position in this country, as I said, with spending, taxing, and borrowing, has just gone through the toilet and down through the fall. So we've actually got to make sure that when we come back to you and say we're going to do it, we actually can do it and we will do it. And so we're people who want to make sure we are people of our word. We don't promise you something that we can't deliver, but we have massive sympathy for what the needs are here. We understand that. You guys have done a great job of presenting it to us. But in fairness to Nicola and myself, we need to make sure that we've got a capital budget that we can actually really say where that money's coming from, how we're going to fund it, and what we can or can't commit. So I'm be very straight up about that, the choices that we've got. Yes, there was, there was a private hospital that was built in very quick time, the private money here. It was built about three days over, but so they had a scheduling day despite the pandemic. They built it um, the, yes. uh, the Southern Cross um, yeah. the hospital, did a fantastic job actually. Yeah, it built very, very quickly despite uh, lockdowns. Yes, ma'am. Can um, you say your name and what you do? Julia, MTF Finance, Central yeah. Um Thanks. Uh, mine's not really locally based, um, it's more around the cyclones and floods and where you think the costs will end up um, from the North Island um, and what, uh, what will National do so that we don't sink funds into that year after year with climate change and um, also the rumours around uh, certain insurers maybe not having the funds and do you expect the government to have to step up to um, sort that out as well? Yeah, I mean, what Nicola and I said from the get-go is that we want to be very supportive and constructive with the government on cyclone recovery. It's really important. Um, and But what we want to do is define the envelope and get really clear about what the actual cost actually is. Part of it will be funded through insurers, part of it will come through the government. And then if we have to go borrow for that money, we're going to have to borrow for that money. You know, essentially is what's needed. But what we are deeply sceptical about is this government's ability to get things done. And if I think about Kaikoura, you know, where basically there was a, a, you know, a terrible earthquake, but there was a small empowered minister and a team that actually got things done on time and full on budget. I reckon what we saw, we having conversations in two years' time about roads and bridges that haven't been fixed and repaired, because these guys really struggled to get things done, actually. And they've created some quite convoluted governance structures along the way. So we want to be supportive. We understand that it's money that we don't have because we're blowing out the spending and, um, and if we have to borrow for it, so be it. Um, we have to also, it does underscore why you've got to get rid of any wasteful spending because you just can't have wasteful spending and borrowing going on when you could be fixing something from your own spending. So we're supportive of that. Um, we're keen to see, and we're pushing quite hard. I've been in Napier many, many times uh, talking to, to the community there. We're waiting to see they need clarity. They need clarity about what's happening with their land. I think the insurance firms gave them the data a long time ago. I think the councils have given their data, and the government now needs to come out and be really clear about what land can be, um, you know, um, reinvested and rebuilt, and what needs to be mitigated, and actually what's going to be written off, uh, essentially. So we're up for that support. The bigger question is also then the need to invest in climate adaptation, and that means actually 
thinking about a framework of what's the balance, who pays um, in terms of is it the property owner, is it the rate payer, is it the taxpayer, is it the insurer or the bank, and how much is paid in this generation versus next generation as we actually invest in infrastructure. And again, in the context of city or regional deals, those are the kind of projects that would come up that you'd actually say, right, that's the funding that we've now got to go off and do between central and local government on climate adaptation in this region. So no one's solved that around the world. It's actually really hard trying to work out that framework. And otherwise, everyone just keeps pointing at everyone and the issue doesn't go away. So we do actually have to front it and actually get a good framework in place. And we've said to the government and to other political parties, we're comfortable working in a bipartisan way because this is an issue for the next 30 to 50 years and beyond. There's going to be a series of different governments of different colours, and it's important to get the thinking square and straight uh, as a first set of principles along the way. So, yeah, we've got to get a framework in place for climate adaptation so we can work our way through those issues, as difficult as they'll be. We're supportive of making sure we do the cyclone recovery properly, but it also does mean that we are sceptical about their ability to deliver and their ability to clamp, clamp down the wasteful spending that's really going on that would help us. Okay. Oh, yes. Back to housing. Yes. <laughs> it's one of our you know, biggest Those issues at the yeah. moment for employers. Can I just, you've, you've talked about um, you know, reinstating interest deductibility and, um, and right the bright line. Too. We had the Minister of Housing um, down recently, and we had quite a few members actually uh, offer her solutions <laughs> around yes. how to fix the housing crisis, and we were told that legislation takes a long time to change. Um, we see locally that the Residential Tenancy Act and the changes to that have had a huge impact on our supply of long-term yeah. rental housing. What kind of commitment can you make to rolling back to the Residential Tenancy Act to the way it was before? Yeah, so Chris Bishop spoke to us, Nicola, just down here actually in Queenstown a couple of weeks ago. And um, we're deeply serious about, yes, we've got to restore reductibility. We have to unwind the bright line test from 10 to 2. Uh, and what we need to do is also get the balance right between uh, tenancy and landlord in terms of legislation, and that balance has got out of whack. So Chris has got a pretty clear proposal for that. He thinks he can move pretty quickly through all of that. And what we're trying to work out is what can we digest in our first 100 days. Uh, and actually, in, and there was a bit of work of getting legislation drafted, but we need to move with some intensity and some speed around that. What else would you say, Nicola? Yeah, there's a couple so of might be. So the other thing that Queenstown's kind of missing that you'd expect to see in a place like this and in many places around the world is you'd expect a developer to come in and build purpose-built rental yep. housing, yep. long-term secure tenancies for working people. Uh, and so when you look at why that's not the case, our law basically prevents it uh, in two ways. Uh, first, if you're an overseas investor, you are not allowed to build purpose-built um, rental housing and own it here, and there are investors circling around New Zealand who want to do it. So I, I actually drafted a bill, I handed it over to my um, colleague Chris Bishop, and it's a bill to rent housing bill, and it says actually you get a fast track through the overseas investment regime, you get an exemption, if you want to build rental housing in New Zealand, you can do it. Uh, and I think that's really applicable for Queenstown because there's big money that wants to invest, it's a great asset for them, uh, and that would provide long-term secure tenancies for people. Even so super funds, eh? Yep, yeah. super funds, um, patient capital, right, that are looking at, there's an ongoing revenue source, uh, but at the same time uh, they can also um, 
they can also have an asset that's appreciating over time. So they want to be able to do it. But the second thing uh, that built rent housing needs to get out, out the gate is a bit of a tweak to the way the depreciation rules work. And again, we're going to do that. So that's one solution I think is really relevant for Queenstown and it's high in our junior. The other one that's important is Queenstown Lakes Housing Trust. I don't know who's had something to do with them. Yeah. Uh, they are magnificent. They are magnificent. The work they have done on the smell of an oily wet rag is incredible. So we want to empower them to do a lot more. There's two ways we do that. The first is, at the moment, Kayang Ora, who is the government's state house builder, are just sucking up crown capital. In this budget, they've got $6 billion, $3 billion to build 3,000 houses. You do the maths, that's a million dollars per state house. That is pretty inefficient, if you ask me. As well as, they got a $3 billion bailout for the fact that the money they'd previously been funded to build state houses, they'd run out of and they hadn't actually got there. They are really inefficient. So what we want to do is instead of continuing to fork huge amounts of capital into KO, we want to say, well, let's actually give Queenstown Lakes the finance they need to expand what they're doing. Because they're not short of ideas or options, they're short of capital. Yeah. And the Crown can help with that. Uh, in conjunction with that, I'm really sympathetic to Queenstown Lake's argument where they say there should be some inclusionary zoning. Uh, and I know that that's ultimately an issue for councils. As Chris said, we believe in localism, but we don't think the law should prevent you having inclusionary zoning if that's what you want to have. So we will tweak the legislation so that if you choose as a council to allow for it, you can have it. Good. You sit the back. Hey, Ashley Ebro. Um, I wear many hats, but I'll say mother for this one. Um, so the Labor government obviously said that they will decrease the funding for um, early childhood um, daycares to two. Um, obviously, there's a massive issue across the country, but particularly in Queenstown, of getting a child into daycare. Um, it's incredibly hard, almost non-existent. Um, I'm, on, I'm number 190 on a wait list, trying wow. to get a child wow. into to daycare. Um, but that, that incentive is huge in the mothers' groups at the moment. Um, yeah. You know, it's up to $8,000 well, for the first year yeah. um, as an incentive, and people really want to see that. They'll just see that it's $8,000 in their back pocket and yeah. getting, getting their child into daycare at two as opposed to three. So what's yeah, your guys' so take on that? Let, let me give in, if I might both answer it. I mean, the first part I'll answer is that we have our own policy, Family Boost, <coughs> and essentially what we've said is, look, up to 25% of your childcare costs for your children under the age of five, uh, we can, you, you can get back as a tax rebate, uh, up to an amount of $3,900 a year. And actually that gets paid directly into your bank account uh, every second week through the IRD system. That's how we would do it deliver you the cash because at the same time you might be dealing with mortgage rate increase, um, you're going to be dealing with a whole bunch of other inflationary pieces as well and it's the best way to get the money back off Brian Robertson and Chris Hipkins and out of government into you and back into your pocket so you can spend and, and manage that as you see fit. But that's our policy. We think it's pretty clean and efficient um, and actually works in a much more efficient way. What you've seen with the two-year-old announcement and extension has caused some problems and you have seen yesterday the actual ECE sector says look, when we're actually, there's a whole bunch of complications and costs here, and it's going to really actually force some even to close as a result. 
So they could jump on talk a bit more about that part. Yeah, look, the waiting list that you're on, unfortunately <coughs> that's something that's happening around the country. There's been about 300 early childhood centres that have closed just this year. Mm. And when you ask them, why is that, what's going on, uh, they say that the way the government funding system is working is not working for them. So it was pretty astounding actually, three quarters of early childhood centres signed an open letter yesterday to the government saying your slogan of 20 hours for two-year-olds, you didn't consult with us, you haven't talked to us, the funding model you've proposed and the rules you have proposed are impossible and we will not deliver it unless you change it. Uh, and simply what they've said is they're underfunding it dramatically, so for many centres it would mean uh, that they would either have to reduce the number of teachers they employ, charge really high fees for kids attending beyond 20 hours, uh, reduce the number of uh, children that they take, or in some cases, as Chris says, close. So my point is a simple one. I get why 20 hours sounds great, but it's really complicated, and we've seen a lot of policies from this government where what gets here on the tin Great intention is not delivered in the detail. Whether it's the mental health spending, whether it's Kiwi Build, uh, I think this could be another one of those. And uh, the government's been told by the sector to go back to the drawing board and work on it. So there's all of that noise. We're offering something simple. We're going to go with the current system and then add a layer on top so that families get $75 back each week into their back pocket immediately. Uh, it's a very simple mechanism. And the childcare centres have said, we like that, and that will give us the confidence we need to expand. Um, so we prefer our policy. Mm. Chances are that we would, but it isn't. <laughs> Righto. Well, can I just say, um, for the questions, can I say thank you so much for making time for us this morning. Really appreciate it. Um, I do want to see Mina. I know people are frustrated, and I know they're worried. Uh, some are angry. Um, it's going to be a pretty stark choice this election between uh, the choices that are in front of you. Who do you think fundamentally is the best place to run the economy? So that it's not about the money and the dollars and cents, but it kind of is. So that we've actually got the cash to afford to be investing back in our public services, and that's really going to be the choice I think ahead of people uh, as we go to the election on October 15th. Thanks for listening to us. Really appreciate the chance to be in front of you, and hope you've got a sense of what we're about and what Nicola and I want to achieve and why we're confident we can turn it around, we can make this country a place of great potential and restore the promise of, doesn't matter where you come from, it's where you're going, and if you work hard enough in the best country on planet Earth, you can do incredibly well. Uh, that's really what we've got to create for people. So, um, yeah, thank you for your time, really appreciate it.